You are listening to HHS bonus content from the Hillbilly Horror Stories Network. This bonus content is released during the week for your listening pleasure while awaiting the release of Sunday's actual Hillbilly Horror Stories episode. All bonus content will be listed as HHS Presents or HHS Midweek while the actual Hillbilly Horror Stories episodes will have only an episode number and a title listed, for example, 187, The Kentucky Vampires. Those episodes are a longer deep dive into a particular subject. If you are new to the show and the bonuses aren't your style, get the full-length episode to try. Enjoy. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 22 of the midweek episodes. Hey guys. We got a fun one for you tonight. Not fun in the sense of, uh, it's actually a horrible story coming up <laughs> later, but but it's it's for a listening pleasure, the young lady we got coming on, Sarah Turney, she has a podcast out where she talks about her sister who went missing back in 2001. Yeah. And she makes some pretty bold accusations of some family members. I won't spoil it for you in case you haven't heard it. But she's going to be on a little later to tell you about her podcast, Voices of Justice. And that's Miss Sarah Turney. And it's a fascinating interview, and it's an even more fascinating podcast. Yeah, yeah. Very gut-wrenching, we'll say that. It is very gut-wrenching. Okay, tonight we're going to tell you the story of the Merchant House in New York City. And... Tracy, we just did a story last week on the uh, House of Death in yes, New York City, we and we mentioned in that episode that there are two places that kind of get known as the most haunted place in New York City. One of them is the House of Death, and the other one is the Merchant House. So we're getting both of those stories here Good. within a couple of weeks of each other. So the Merchant House in New York City was built in 1832 by Joseph Brewster. Check one, check two, check one, check two. It was then sold to a wealthy merchant by the name of Seabury Treadwell. It sounds like a wealthy merchant, doesn't it? I like that name, Seabury. Treadwell. <laughs> I like that name. <laughs> the Treadwell family would live in this house for about a century. The last member of the family to live there was Gertrude Treadwell, and she was a Seabury's youngest daughter. Gertrude died in 1933, but was able to keep the house pretty much as it was when it was built for her the whole time oh, that's cool. she lived there. In fact, today, it's the only 19th century family home that is still fully intact in New York City. Oh, that's awesome. Her cousin bought the uh, home back in 1936 and did some restoration. She then turned it into a museum, which is still what it is today. So you can go visit today as a museum. Some people say that this location is the most haunted location in New York City. Of course, the other claim that the Death House, which we did a few weeks ago, is also the most haunted location in New York City. Many paranormal stories have been generated just by the Merchant's House since it opened to the public. Visitors have reported unexplained smells, voices that seem like they're coming from nowhere, and phantom footsteps. Not to mention that footsteps from are coming from empty rooms. Ooh. A piano plays that's mostly hasn't worked for years, but somehow it plays, even though it's been out of commission. I know you guys love ninja snores, but sometimes it just completely me complete me. See? It completely <laughs> throws me off from what I'm doing. 
It's always perfect timing, though. For you, not for me. <laughs> so apparitions have been spotted here. These apparitions are believed to be the ghost of Gertrude herself. Good. It makes sense. I mean, she was born in this house. She lived there 93 years of her life. Oh, my goodness. And then she died in the house. Aw. Many people said that they've seen an elderly woman in various rooms in the house. But here's the cool part. They've also seen a younger version of the same woman <gasps> in the house. Now, how cool is that? I wonder if they pass each other and go, hey, don't I know you? <laughs> I find this fascinating, honestly, because I think this is the first time I've heard of a spirit being seen in a house in two different yeah. time frames of oh their, you know, their existence. That's really awesome. So she is usually seen by the front door or in the bedroom that she passed away in. No. That's the two spots. It's possible that Gertrude's father also haunts the home. Visitors and staff have reported a presence around uh, the upstairs bedrooms, mm -hmm. and they think that may be him. Some have actually had a run-in with what they believe was Mr. Seabury. There was this couple who was there, and they said they were told to leave from when they were upstairs, right? And they were told to leave, and they refused. By the ghost? Apparently, they said they, they were told to leave, and when they refused, he blocked them from going into the study that's located upstairs. Then, they left, and they noticed Seabury's picture downstairs, and they both kind of looked at each other in amazement because that was the man they had just seen upstairs. So, did they leave after that? <laughs> They're like, well, we're, now I know we're going back up. He's not going to stop us. But you know what? How cool is that, though? Like, your dad and you're, like, in the house that you all lived in forever, and you're still there. I yeah. mean, it's, like, still your house. I think it's so awesome, especially when your dad's there with you. I would be sick of the house. I don't think I don't think I want to be anywhere 93 years. What do you mean? Like, I don't want... I wouldn't want to live in the same house for 93 years of my life. Well, I mean, I honestly, like the experience of moving in different houses. Yeah, I mean, I honestly was thinking that, too, but... I mean, if they have to be there and didn't want to move, at least they're there together again still. It'd be like Shelly and my dad stuck together. Oh, isn't that the th Oh, my gosh. <laughs> isn't that the truth? Because they've lived there the majority For of their so life long. together. Yes, yes. Yeah. God love him. <laughs> <laughs> One of the most paranormally active spots in this house is the attic. This was the maid's quarters at one point. Now, back when this was a uh, functioning residence, obviously, that was the maid's quarter. Numerous EVPs have been captured here, along with several full-body apparitions have been seen here. Children's footsteps can be heard upstairs running up and down the halls. Now, we mentioned the upstairs bedroom earlier. Besides people feeling a presence, they also see strange lights up there in the bedroom. Beds apparently get messed up when there's been nobody in the room. Is it possible that Gertrude and Seabury are not the only treadwheels? That are still in the home. I was going to say, don't blow it and say they were in the bed together. Because that's just going to no. be cool. <laughs> a woman seems to think that she might have spoke to the youngest son, Samuel. I don't know what makes her think that she spoke to his youngest son. But that's still what she thinks. So, not really sure. There's another woman who said that she smelled a very strong odor of mothballs. When they don't have any mothballs on the premises. They don't use them there for whatever reason. There was another instance 
that included the chandelier swaying back and forth for about 45 minutes for no apparent reason. Oh, good grief. That's scary. What if it fell? I don't know. They've had tables that have had the tablecloths yanked off. Ah, see, somebody's just showing off now. (laughs) Furniture has been reported to shake. And there was a paranormal investigator that got an EVP in the kitchen. And they said, you know, they asked, what was your main role here? And they said, servant. Oh, my gosh. That's a quick little story on the Merchant House in New York City. That's cool. I like that. All right, so let's get into Sarah. Like I said, we didn't tell you a whole lot about it, and she tells you basically everything about it, so I'm not going to rehash what she said. It's going to sound a lot better coming out of her mouth since she knows the story. Well, sure. Uh, All I'm going to say is I have a lot of respect for her, Mm -hmm. and after you hear the story, you'll have a lot of respect for her too, my guess, so. Hey guys, I got a special guest with us tonight. I know we this is normally reserved for some type of paranormal authors or podcasters or paranormal researchers. But we've got a, I want to say true crime genre, and I hate to even say it that way because of the subject matter, obviously. But this is Voices for Justice, and Sarah Turney is uh, obviously the podcaster that does this, and she's trying to find the true answers as to what happened to her sister. Her sister went missing at, uh, back in 2001, 17 years old. First of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Sarah. I appreciate it. The story here is absolutely remarkable because, you know, you feel like that when your sister went missing, that that changed obviously your whole life. But then you feel like that your dad actually is the reason that, and that he actually killed her. And you've actually went forward with trying to bring this out there and try to prove this. And that's a pretty gutsy, gutsy move for somebody to have to feel that way, first of all, but then to be the one to feel like that you got to take the reins to make sure that justice is served for, for Alyssa. So tell me a little bit about what happened. Tell me, tell me exactly. Take me back to when Alyssa went missing back in 2001 and tell me what the circumstances were for somebody who hasn't listened to the podcast. Sure. Alyssa is four years older than me. Our our mother died when she was eight and I was only four in 1993. So Alyssa was really the only mother I ever had. And as you said, she went missing on May 17th, 2001. It was right after her 17th birthday. It was the last day of school and our father picked her up early. They got into a fight at lunch over some rules about the summer. She wanted some more freedom and our father wasn't okay with that. And she left a runaway note saying that she was going to California. So do you feel like that she went to California or what do you think happened at that point? No, um, I absolutely don't. So I used to think that she did go to California. But when this case began um, being investigated in about 2008, a lot of things happened to point me um, in the direction of my father. There's a lot of history that goes into the way that Alyssa was raised and kind of what happened to her. So later on in my life, I found out that our father was, you know, quite bad to her in a variety of fashions. She was watched over heavily. She was, uh, you know, basically there was a lot of surveillance on her. I found out that there were hidden cameras inside of the house watching her. I found out that she had crazy behavioral contracts with our father. She wasn't allowed to do things like walk alone after, after dark. And he also made her sign and attest to the fact that she was never sexually or physically abused. 
These are all things I didn't know until years and years later, so when she went missing in 2001, I very much believed what my father said. I was only 12 years old at the time, so I I went right along with his narrative. How long after she went missing was it before you actually started putting two and two together and thought, you know, I think my dad has something to do with this? Sure. It was a good 10 years after she went missing. Like I said, a lot had transpired. So when the police started looking into this case, what happened was they they reopened it after a false confession from a gentleman in Florida. Um, It was a man who was already convicted of murder, and he said that he had also killed Alyssa. But he also said that he killed 21 other girls, including J.C. Lee Dugard, um, who is obviously alive and well today, you know, if you're a true crime fan. But yeah, so this reopened the case, and the investigators quickly realized that things weren't adding up with my father. And when they came to search our home, they actually found the largest explosive cache in Arizona history. So even that didn't really propel me to believe that it was my father just yet. It was a big combination of factors. You know, the the police sat me down and basically told me, like, we're out of leads. We think your father did this. He was sexually abusing Alyssa. You have a sister you don't know about. What do you think about your dad now? And then he went on ABC 2020 in 2009 and said some really shocking things. And when I confronted him, he really didn't act like a normal father. You know, I went to him and I said, things aren't adding up. Are you involved? And he basically just skated around the topic. He didn't say, no, sweetie, of course I'm not involved or, oh my goodness, why would you ever think that? He kind of just moved on to the next subject. And every time I would bring it up, he would just avoid it. So it was a slow process. I mean, it took me probably a decade to realize that it was most likely my father. At the time Alyssa went missing, what was your relationship with Alyssa and what was your relationship with your dad at the time? How how good or bad was either one of those relationships? Like I said, Alyssa was kind of like my mother um, and everything that came along with that. So I was really bratty to her. We were four years apart and I was super uncool and she was very cool. And yeah, I was a bratty little sister, so we fought over a lot of things. We did have those sweet tender moments where she would cook dinner or braid my hair or do my nails. There's there's all sorts of wonderful moments like that. But there was really a wedge divided between us. Basically, the difference between the way that we were treated was night and day. Like I said, Alyssa was very heavily monitored, and I was the exact opposite. My dad didn't care what I did, and I mean that in a very literal sense. Like, I didn't have to go to school starting from, like, eight years old until I dropped out of high school. He would come in my room every day and ask if I even wanted to go. I could be gone for days, and he wouldn't even ask where I was at. So, yeah, I mean, we we were treated really, really differently, but I loved my dad very much, and he was like a best friend to me because when you're a kid, you don't see that as neglect. You don't see that as bad parenting. When your dad doesn't make you go to school or lets you eat fast food every day or lets you have candy and ice cream for breakfast, like he's the coolest guy on the planet to you. So that that went all the way up to when I was a teenager. You know, like I said, at the age of 17, Alyssa wasn't allowed to date. She wasn't allowed to walk alone after dark. She wasn't allowed to do anything. And at 17, I had dropped out of high school. My boyfriend was living with us and I had the master bedroom with a mini fridge full of beer. So things were totally different. <laughs> was was your father, was he biologically both of your fathers? No. So that's a huge factor I always forget to mention. Alyssa was his stepchild, technically. So Alyssa was born to another man and me and Alyssa shared the same mother. 
But our father adopted Alyssa when she was about three years old. So when we were growing up, it was just, you know, brother and sister and dad. We didn't use step. We didn't use half. Um, It was very much a rule that is still ingrained into me today. All my siblings are technically half. Yeah, I mean, technically it was his stepdaughter and I am his biological daughter. Do you think that had anything to do with the different treatment? Absolutely. Looking back on it now, yes. You know, she was sexually abused. We know this. She is told countless people about this, including a teacher that my father was dating. So when Alyssa was nine years old, she went to this teacher and said, I'm having sex with my dad. And this teacher really just blew it off. But the sexual abuse factor, I think, very much was targeted just for Alyssa because, you know, that biological factor was not there. It's very sad and disturbing all at the same time. Yeah. Okay, so let's go now to the point that something's happened to Alyssa. She's she's gone. What do you think happened and what do you think he, if, if, I know you think that he actually killed her, but what do you think happened to the body? Oh, it's so hard to say, to be honest. I, I like bounce between my theories all the time, just because when it comes down to those last moments, it's like, who knows? But I, I keep a few things in mind, right? So there's the timeline. There's a fluctuation between like four to five hours to up to nine hours that he could have had alone with Alyssa to do whatever. But I still think that you're limited because the Arizona dirt, like the desert ground, is so hard. It is extremely difficult to dig manually. So I think that he would have had to rent something or took her to a hole that was pre-dug. But I lean towards a theory that, that correlates with things he's done in the past. So there are at least two incidents we know of in which my father picked up Alyssa early from school, drove her out into the middle of the desert, because in Arizona you can drive just a few miles up the freeway and pull off and there's a ton of desert. So he would take her out of school, take her out to the desert, and try try to or possibly actually sexually abuse her. There's a few different stories. So I think it was the same thing. I think it was the last day of her junior year of high school for her. He picked her up early, took her out into the middle of the desert, and tried to sexually assault her. And I think something went wrong, or he had planned it. It's hard. I lean towards that it was premeditated for a number of factors. But again, it's just, it's so up in the air that I I can't tell you for sure what happened to the body. But you know, he was known to have bought, I think it was 50 or 60 pounds of lime um, about a week before Alyssa disappeared. So I think that he did dispose of the body somewhere in the desert and use that lime to help it decompose. Now, is it my understanding that you also feel like that he maybe has killed somebody else in the past? Yeah, well, I mean... It's hard to say. There's a factor with my mother's death that is extremely suspicious. So like I said, our mother died in 1993 and she died of cancer, which, you know, is an open and shut case, right? Except for the fact that about three weeks before my mother died, my father resigned from his job, meaning that there's a document that he signed explaining that his health insurance as well as the life insurance benefits would expire at the end of that month. During that month, my father spent a lot of money. He also said that he wasn't worried about it because of this life insurance policy that was expiring at the end of the month. And my mother died one day before that life insurance policy expired. Wow, that is kind of suspect. Like I said, she did have cancer. We know that she was dying. But did he accelerate that for the for the life insurance? I think it's a possibility. So let's go back to when your father got arrested. We, we kind of glossed over it a little bit. I know that wasn't the intention. But so he had all kinds of explosives there. What was the intentions, uh, do you think? Or Because you know, I know, obviously, they felt like there might be some mental issues or something. But what was he preparing for? 
So according to his manifesto that they found in the house, it's a 97-page document titled Diary of a Madman Martyr. And in that, he outlines his plan to use these explosives. And essentially, what he says is that he's getting revenge on this electrical union that he was a part of decades ago. He's getting revenge on them because he believes that they killed Alyssa. He outlines this entire story in which this electrical union hired two assassins, had them kill Alyssa, to which my father had to go out and kill those two assassins, and then build this bomb plot to further get revenge on the Union. So that's what he was using the bombs for. How much credence do you put into that? Do you think he actually believed that? Or do you think it was all just part of the cover-up? I think it was all part of the cover-up. I don't think that he believes that. There's a few different factors, right? So the police looked into the two gentlemen that my father says that he killed. And they were real people that worked for the Union. But both died of natural causes, I want to say at least a decade apart. And in 2017, when I spoke with him in person, I asked him about the union story. You know, I said, well, what do you think it is? Do you think these union people killed Alyssa? What do you think? And he really backed down from that story. So the union assassin story isn't something he really tells anymore, which indicates to me that obviously he doesn't believe it. And he was never brought up on charges. You know, he told the he admitted to the police. He said, I killed two men. And the police looked into it and said, nope, never mind. We don't care. Take us after the point where... He gets arrested. He wasn't, you know, obviously convicted or anything of anything. What happened then with your relationship with your father and and what happened with the case at that point with Alyssa? After he got arrested, like I said, it took me a few years to come around. So he ended up serving, he had a sentence of 10 years for the bombs. I think he served about seven or eight with good, you know, good behavior and whatnot. So yeah, while my father was in prison, essentially what happened was I went to the detectives and said, hey, like, I see what you see now. I don't think he's as innocent as I did before. Like, how can I help you? I just wanted to be involved and help in any way I could. So what they did was start asking me questions to ask him. You know, um, have you talked to him today? What does he think about this? Can you ask him this question? It was an ongoing dialogue for years with these two detectives. And what they said was, listen, we can't charge him right now while he's in prison, because if we do, he will be able to combine the two sentences. So what we're going to do is on the day that he's released from prison, we will charge him with the murder of Alyssa. And that day came and nothing happened. And in fact, about three days before my father was released from prison, I get an email saying that the two detectives had been reassigned from Alyssa's case. And honestly, at that time, I thought, okay, great, the case is over. Like, we have our guy. They're going to charge him. That makes sense. They don't need to be on the case anymore. Like, the investigation's done. But little did I know that they actually had apparently no plans to prosecute. So I went in to speak with them a few months later, and they said, we're not going to prosecute without a body. And I said, okay, where are we looking for the body? And they said, we're not. You know, we don't have the resources. And I said, can I raise funds for you to be able to search for the body? And they said, no. Um, And then they said that I would have a silent witness campaign with some radio spots, as well as a billboard on every freeway in Phoenix with Alyssa's picture on it. And that never happened. And they told me before leaving that meeting that my best chance to get Alyssa's case prosecuted was media exposure. So that's kind of where I'm at today. Okay, so like when I listened to the very first episode, man, I got to be honest with you, it was shocking to me because your your first episode basically starts off with you telling 
the listeners that you recorded your dad during a conversation and it was a very rough conversation. Be prepared. Basically, buckle up. And man, that conversation was, it really made me feel uneasy because I could feel the anger with you on just wanting him to just admit it and get it over with. And he did everything he could to skate around it and not admit it. And I know during that conversation, you had talked about asking him if he would, I think, go back on 2020, if I remember correctly. And he was basically refusing. So, I mean, all through the conversation, he's wanting to do whatever he can to make it right. But then everything you suggest, he's completely against doing. I mean, how did that make you feel during that conversation? Which I know you you needed to get it recorded for the purpose of, of hoping something came out of it. But how did you feel when the conversation was over? Did you feel like that that you just was, you know, were just completely frustrated or what? So the thing about that call is he hung up on me. That's the way it ends. So yeah, I was a little frustrated. I didn't expect that because he's quite the talker. But it's also expected in in the sense that I've spoken to him about it before. And this is what he does in any type of situation that he is being accused of anything. He always skirts around around the subject. You know, this is something I've dealt with since I was a kid. But yeah, I mean, of course, I was hoping that he would go back on 2020. I was pretty sure that he wouldn't. But none of it was a surprise. And the thing is, like, this is my most recent call with him. I was not prepared. I called him off the cuff because I was pissed and I wanted him to go on 2020. So it's a totally different vibe. Like, I feel like I'm so bratty in that call. And I even end it like he sounds kind of convincing, doesn't he? Because I wanted to start the podcast with more of a neutral call, if that even makes sense. I think it'll make more sense when at the end of the podcast, you hear my in-person confrontation with him. But this call was was pretty much designed to be at the forefront of the podcast because I feel like it's a little more neutral. And at times he sounds pretty convincing. So yeah, I mean, I left that call kind of aggravated. I'm kind of excited that I got it on tape and pretty much expecting what he had said. Well, he kept twisting things around. So it didn't matter what you said. He'd always twist it back around to, you know, well, you know, that's not the case. And, you know, you, you're the one that doesn't call me and you're the one that doesn't contact. I I quit calling you because you said you didn't want to hear from me. So he does a good job of trying to twist it completely back every time you do, you know, kind of, of push him in the direction of, hey, just say what's, what's going on. Oh, yeah. Well, he's a complete narcissist. So absolutely. It's it's never him. It's always you. I've never heard him take responsibility for anything in his life. Like I said, that goes down to small things like, oh, my gosh, did you just run a red light or I mean, anything. He just is that person that will forever push it back on you. You know, I think in that call, he was very much trying to be manipulative. And I called him out on that. You know, he said, uh, you know, you even have a doubt in your own mind. And I said, no, I don't. And you saying that will not create one in my mind because I'm well versed at his tactics and I see him do it on his other kids and and it works on some of them. So I know what he's doing and I, I try to curb it. So at this point, what are you hoping to accomplish with the podcast? Is it to get the case reopened? Is it to get resources to be able to maybe just do enough research on your own so you come up with the answer? What's the, the overall goal here? So the thing about this case 
is that I feel like it was pretty well investigated. I say that with a grain of salt, right? Because I'm sure that there's a ton of things I don't know because I'm just a normal person and not a detective. But, you know, but I stand with that. Like the two detectives did a really good job, I feel. They investigated everything they could and talked to everyone they could and spent hours and hours and hours doing this. You know, like Sunday nights at 9 p.m., they're taking calls with people. I I truly believe that they they tried their best at the case. So it's not necessarily that I want it to be reinvestigated. And it is an open case. It's never been closed. So it's not about getting it open either. It's really about following through on that media pressure. You know, you see like you see cases in the media like Stephen Avery and things that push it to to the next level are media. I've tried to go the traditional route. I've tried to appeal to the higher ups, to the state police, to the FBI, to the chief of police, to every agency I could think of and say, hey, let's just get this prosecuted traditionally. But no one is listening to me. So at this point, I'm just following their instructions to get media. And my hope is that it gets so big that they can't ignore it anymore and that the state just finally accepts this case. Obviously, the police had basically disclosed to you that they felt like that your father was the guilty party. They felt like Alyssa was dead and he was, without a doubt, person who did it. But like you said... They didn't have any way to prove it and couldn't prosecute or chose not to prosecute without a body. But what what are they saying happened if they can't say on the record this is what happened? Are they saying she's just a runaway or she was abducted or what are they what are what was the official reasoning given or did they even give one? No, they they don't have to give you reasons unfortunately. And they don't say that they think she was just a runaway. They they know that it was my father. There's no skirting around that or avoiding that fact. In fact, I just for the first time in years spoke to one of the original detectives the other day. And he said, like, that's why we were trying to get you to see it our way. That's why we were trying to get you to understand that it was your father. Like, it's not a question in anyone's mind. They're not pursuing any other leads. Not that they have any other leads. I want to preface that very much. If they had them, I assume that they would pursue them. But all signs point to our father. So no, the the only reasoning is they wanted more evidence. To which I thought back and said, no, there's a ton of nobody cases in this same county that are tried and won with less evidence. We're not setting a precedent here, so I disagree that we need a body. So that's kind of where it's at, you know, and the police have been pretty horrendous to me in the past few years. Ever since those two detectives have been reassigned, like, I have emails of them saying one thing and audio of them saying another in so many instances, and they just lie through their teeth, and it's really, really unsettling. So with this podcast, I really hope to put everything out there. That's everything including my family history, everything including Alyssa, everything including other theories, right? I go over in depth with this um, false confession. I go over in depth with any other theory that isn't my father. I want to present everything, but that also includes presenting all of the things that the police did. Um, So I'm really excited to get to that because I don't think that people understand how crazy the justice system can really be. What do you think the reason that the the police have been so rough on you the last couple of years? Is it because they just wanted to go away? Or or do you think there's some kind of conspiracy involved where maybe there was some hush money or something from your dad back in the day or something? Do Any ideas along that line? Yeah. So I don't think it's anything to do with them covering up my, my dad, to be completely honest. I think it has to do with them covering up for themselves. I think this case going to court means that they have to explain to a judge or a jury or whatever 
why they didn't investigate this case until 2008, because almost nothing was done for seven years about Alyssa's disappearance. Had one person just come to our home on the day she disappeared, looked up and said, hey, what's that camera on the outside of your house? Do you have a tape of her leaving? All of this would have happened so quickly. We would have had um, all sorts of records and all sorts of video footage from the day that she disappeared. You know, there's street cameras, there's traffic cameras, there's ATM cameras, there's all sorts of things. We lost the phone records. We lost the school records because of how long it had been. So when this case, and I say when because I truly believe it will go to trial, when this case goes to trial, the Phoenix police have to account for their actions, and there's some wrongdoing there. They just messed up. So I think that they have to weigh what that looks like. Do they forever want this Alyssa's Army Justice for Alyssa movement on their backs? Or do they just want to admit that, hey, maybe we didn't do the right thing in 2001, but now we're going to do the right thing? I don't know. Well, Sarah, I feel for you, and and, and I know this is it's got to be hard to constantly relive this situation day after day after day and, and I, because you've chosen to to do what you can to try to help, and that's that's quite a burden you've taken on upon yourself. So I definitely feel for you, and uh, I hope you get what you're looking for. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I always say Alyssa would have done it for me, and probably more aggressively. She was very spunky. So I'm happy to do it. It's not easy and it's a very emotional it's very emotionally draining and takes more hours in the day than I usually have, but I have to. Like I feel like because I have all this information, I have 3000 plus pages, I have a hundred home videos. I have a ton of audio. I have to present it because I don't think that it's fair to expect any other content creator to put themselves on the line with this type of crazy information. So yeah, I felt very much like I had to. It's very black and white for me. I um, I want to do it and I want to get it out there. And I hope that people realize how insane it is and how how much injustice there is. I've got one more question for you before we give you an opportunity to tell everybody how they can try to help. In the call that you made to your father, he kept wanting to point out, and it was a difference of of what you were saying and what he was saying about the intellect of... Alyssa, he apparently kept trying to make it out as she was slow, uh, was having difficulties in school. But that's not the way you remember it, is it? No, that's not the way anyone remembers it. Um, So, yes, my father is obnoxious to the point that he tries to tell people that Alyssa is, you know, mentally challenged. Um, She went through so many trials and tribulations due to this. Like, growing up, he basically let her know that she was stupid. That's what he kept telling her. You can't do anything without me. You can't even you can't even remember the rules of the house. I have to write them on poster boards and put them in the living room for you. He beat her down every day. But Alyssa wasn't stupid. She got average grades. She would help me with creative assignments. Like she wasn't stupid at all. She just didn't like doing her schoolwork. She wasn't on medication. There was no official diagnosis for the ADD that my father says that she had. And at one point, he actually um, sued the school district in order to get her into special education classes. And what that meant was that she had to also ride the special education bus. So Alyssa started ditching school, and then that became a problem. And it's just this huge cycle 
of him beating her down and her acting out because of it and then him beating her back down. Uh, But no, no one who knew Alyssa says that she was mentally challenged or had ADD or anything. It's horrible. Absolutely horrible. Wow. Uh, the story, like I said, I, I just encourage anybody to listen to the podcast. You'll the, from the very first episode, it's it's going to be something you can't ignore. From that point on, it will it will completely reel you in to the situation. But tell any everybody out there listening how they can keep up with the case uh, and anything that they might be able to do to help out. Yeah, of course. Um, so sorry, my dog is scratching. <laughs> I definitely record in a closet. Please tell no one. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, the best way to keep up with Alyssa's story, of course, is listen to Voices for Justice. That comes out every two weeks on Thursday. But in addition to that, I have a slew of resources on justiceforalyssa.com. And I am crazy on social media all the time. So you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, follow my personal accounts, follow the podcast, follow the Justice for Alyssa movement, whatever you feel like. I'm absolutely everywhere. And in terms of what people can do to help, I wish that there was some secret formula or something I could say that would make this happen, right? Like, I have a petition, but that by no means forces anyone to do anything. It's just a a show of support to show how many people care. I think it's at over 250,000 signatures right now. But the police told me to my face they don't care if I have a million. So really what I ask people to do is just share her story. Share this podcast. Share anything that relates to her and tell your friends um, because it's that media pressure that I feel will will truly get us to the next level. Thank you so much, Sarah. I wish we could have had you on under under better circumstances, but you know, this is what you're doing. This is what you've made your life mission. And, and we're just glad to be able to help out in some, some way. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. And uh, if you get any new developments and hopefully you eventually get a confession, then uh, we'll have you back on to have a little celebratory meeting. Yes. All right, babe. Thank you so much. Let's listen to Sarah. So what do you think about her situation to where she thinks her dad killed her sister and she's taken an all out effort and assault basically on the police department there in Arizona yeah. and against her dad and anybody else who doubts to try to prove that he's the killer. I mean, all I can say is God bless her. That has to be so hard on her to do knowing that that's your father. That was your sister. I, I mean, And like she said that she was a daddy's girl. I mean, yes. this was like, you know, I, she idolized him. growing Yeah. Up. That, that is a really, really sad story. But, you know, I'm glad that she's trying to find justice and for her sister. And hopefully one day it'll be done and she can kind of put it behind her and move on with her life. Because I think she's pretty much consumed with it now. So, But if you guys haven't listened to the podcast, go listen to it. Because episode one, right out the bat, yep. is literally something that'll be once you listen to episode one you're going to be hooked because it starts off with Mm -hmm. all kinds of fireworks yeah it does so all right guys thank you so much for listening we appreciate it we'll talk to you soon bye guys